Well, good morning to you. God is Lord of all. Whether you're a guest with us this morning or a member of King's Cross, I hope even in our time of singing and praising this morning as as the saints lifted up their voice, as the musicians played wildly and worshipfully, that you've been instructed in your mind, in your heart of this truth, that even here we can see God is Lord of all. And we see this everywhere we look. I was at my dining room table this week and looking out over our deck into a clearing with my family. My children noticed a small family of of deer that passed by and a couple of big deer. And then they stopped and they looked back and here comes a little fawn. And we smiled as our hearts were filled with awe and wonder of this creation that God has made and the love that he has put in their hearts for one another. And I remembered looking at creation, that God is Lord of all. On Wednesday evening, we were preparing uh, for soccer nights, and there were some uh, storms on their way. We thought we were monitoring the weather. We were trying to figure out what the sky was going to do. So we were looking at a weather app uh, to see what would happen, and it looked like maybe the storm would, would split and clear, and we would be fine, but we didn't take any chances, so we canceled. And an hour later, the sky got black, other than lightning everywhere you looked. And then the heavens opened up and and they poured out water and and soaked the earth. And we tried to drive home through flooded streets and just remembering God is the God of the sky. He is Lord of all. That soccer nights this week, uh, we had almost 400 children from the community come and, and participate in that event and talked to one family. They were from Russia, another was from China, some uh, refugees from Southeast Asia. There was a family there from the Congo. There was a man there from Serbia, people from Central America. And and as you looked out on that big field, you saw this little collage of, of peoples and cultures from all over the world. And you remember all of this, all of these belong to him. He is Lord of all. And we see this everywhere. We see this in, in the things that we experience and in the stories that we hear. I love a good story. I come from a, a long line of storytellers in my family, passed down from generation to generation. Now, perhaps it's more accurate to say tall tales <laughs> is primarily what we dabble in. But so much can be expressed through a story. Normally, when we think about truth, we think about doctrines and statements, information and facts that can be put in a textbook. But reality, which is where truth exists, is more like a novel. It's a story. Life is a story. G.K. Chesterton says, Each night in the fiery alphabet of every sunset, it is written to be continued. And a story can teach us so much truth. It can take you to places you've never been experience things you wouldn't have otherwise known, up to the third heaven and down to the belly of Sheol. Even in how God has chosen to speak to us through his word so that we might know him better and know ourselves better, he speaks often through story. And it's one of those stories that we will spend our time looking this morning. As we continue our summer series through the Minor Prophets, today we'll be looking in the book of Jonah, A story that speaks 
through the journey of Jonah, through the characters that he meets, it speaks and it tells us this message over and over again. God is Lord of all. So let's pray and then let's look into the text together. Lord of all creation, ruler of heaven and earth, we pray for your will to be done. Even in this time together this morning, speak through your word into our ears and down to our hearts so that we might know you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with a summary of this story of Jonah. And then we'll go back and notice more closely some of the truths that it teaches. So here's the story. The book is essentially divided uh, into four chapters, and it contains basically four major scenes. So we'll start at scene one, and we'll call this Jonah and the boys in the boat. Jonah 1, 1 through 3, says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amity, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish for the presence of the, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah is a prophet, which means God gives him something to say and someone to say it to, and then he goes and says it. Although challenging at times because the message of the prophet is often one of doom and gloom, it's really quite one of the more simple job descriptions of what God would have people do in the Bible. Hear, go, and say. The job of a prophet. Jonah hears, and technically he goes, but he goes in the opposite direction. Nineveh is up here. Joppa is down there. So he flees to the coast, and he gets on a boat, and he lays down, and he takes a nap. And a great storm comes, one of unimaginable power. It's from God. And these experienced sailors are panicked. And they finally wake up Jonah. And he admits that it is his God that is the aggressor and that he is the target. And only one thing can save them all. Throw him overboard. And so they do. Scene two, Jonah and the great fish. Jonah 1.17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah is now in the sea and death seems imminent. And his prayer that he gives in Jonah chapter 2, he says that the watery depths had overcome him and that seaweed was wrapped around his head. But God appointed a great fish to go and swallow up Jonah rescuing him, saving him from certain death. And it is here in the belly of the fish during these three days where Jonah becomes grateful for his salvation, prays with gratitude, remembers the goodness of the Lord, and vows to walk in obedience. And then God commands the fish to vomit him up on dry land. Scene two. Scene three is Jonah and the great city. Jonah chapter 3, 1 through 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh 
was an exceedingly great city. So he went into Nineveh and said what God wanted him to say. Now, Nineveh was a a violent enemy of Israel and of God. And Jonah preaches to them about the coming judgment of God over their sin. And the people collectively repent and turn to God. Sackcloth and ashes, their laughter turned to mourning, their joy to sorrow over their sin in response to the words of Jonah. They heard and they listened and they turned from their sin and God relented his judgment. That was scene three. Scene four, pouting Jonah and the plant. Verses one through three, chapter four. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die die than to live. So Jonah quickly gets back in his feelings and admits that this is why he ran in the first place. He doesn't like these people, and he doesn't think God should either. Now pay attention to this part of the story. It's hot. He's in the Middle East, and he's sitting cooking and pouting. And then God appoints a plant to grow up over Jonah so that the leaf would provide him shade and cool and comfort. And he gets comfortable, and now he's happy. Then God appoints a worm to go and eat that plant. And he appoints a scorching east wind to blow over Jonah. He is no longer comfortable and no longer happy and wants to die Now, God uses this object lesson to teach uh, something amazing, something that Jonah didn't get, that he should have seen, that Jonah should have known. And it's this. This is the message God's teaching Jonah. God cares about the people he created. He tells Jonah, you love that plant because it brought you a temporary comfort. You didn't labor over it. You didn't make it grow. And yet you love it. The people of the earth I made in my image, I formed in the womb. I labored and grew each one. Every one of the 120,000 people of Nineveh, I care. And that's the end of our story. I love a good story. There's so much truth in this tale. I think it would be helpful for us to hear this morning. And so I want to focus the rest of our time on some of these characters that Jonah comes into contact with. And I want to look at them all because the places he goes and the people he meets and the things that he sees are all shouting out this unified message that we can't miss this morning. God is Lord of all. So let's go back to the beginning and meet these characters. Jonah hears from God and he flees to Joppa And it is here that he meets our first cast of characters, the pagan pirates. Now, as Jonah is attempting to run from God, he finds himself in the town of Joppa and locates a ship that happens to be available 
that will take him to Tarshish, far from Nineveh. This might seem perfect to some. Providence, a ship at the right place at the right time. Well, God's always on time, they say. But a word of caution from this tale. Not every ship that floats by is from God. Now, we love stories of providence because our God is sovereign. And we like when we can see the things that he's doing. And when we get to the coast and there happens to be a ship heading the way we want to go, it must be the Lord. But what if the Lord has already spoken something contrary? Precepts of the Lord. Precepts, not perceived providences, are to guide believers. Like myself, the Lord does not participate in charades. He has spoken to Jonah and to us through his words. And the precepts that he has spoken are to guide us. Not the things we think or feel may be providentially passing by. True, there are no such thing as coincidences. But there is also no such thing as a contradictory God. There is a God who has spoken. And he has spoken to Jonah and he said, go to Nineveh. This ship is not for Jonah, for it is going to Tarshish. But he pays his fare and he gets on board. And it is here that we meet the crew, the pagan pirates. Now, I'm not sure that they were pirates, but they certainly were pagan and when the storm comes from the Lord, we see this. It's a storm that's beyond compare. It's breaking up the boat. And the pagan pirates, the sailors, they, they panic. They panic with body, mind, and soul. They panic with their soul because their first instinct is to try to appease their pagan gods. This is how we know there are pagans, religious relativists. Each cried out to a different God. You cry out to your God. You cry out to your God. See what work, works. Wake up the guy in the bottom of the boat. Let him cry out to his God. And they panicked in the mind, calculating weight distribution and buoyancy as they began to take the cargo and throw it overboard. And then they panicked in their body, rowing as hard as they can to get back to safety. Jonah says, look, throw me over. And they said, no, we can row our way back. But the prayers to their gods fell on deaf ears. Their scientific nautical calculations were insufficient. Their own brute physical strength could not get them to safety because the Lord sent the storm and he is Lord of all. And they find out it's Jonah's God and I believe that something begins to change in the hearts and minds of these sailors. You know, Romans 1 tells us that God's invisible attributes, like his eternal power and divine nature, are clearly perceived by all creation. Perhaps like never before in this storm, these sailors perceived the power of God over creation. And then that was paired with the testimony by Jonah. And verse 9, he says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. And they were seized with fear. 
The thing that was written in their hearts, that they were experiencing on that day with their eyes, they were also hearing through the testimony of Jonah with their ears that there is a God who is Lord of all of this. And so they respond and do what any good, God-fearing group of men, pirates or not, would do. They make Jonah walk the plank. <laughs> it's not completely accurate. Verse 15 says, they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. You know, up to this point, Jonah was living his own truth. He was setting his own course and defining his own path. He was a true child of our time. But unfortunately for Jonah, he was born before it was cool to live out your own truth. He was alive in the days when it was called being a little disobedient brat. And the sailors did what probably should be done with most fully grown little brats. They picked him up and threw him into the sea. <laughs> and the storm ceased from raging instantly. Instantly. You know, I remember another story about another group of men in a boat that would happen some 800 years later. Again, one of the crew was sleeping through a great storm. This time it was Jesus, the very Son of God. And he too was awakened by a fearful crew. And he got up and he spoke to the wind and the rain. Similarly, I would imagine to how God the Father did in our story. And the storm ceased from raging. And remember how those men on the boat responded? They marveled. So too did these sailors. They marveled and were seized with fear. Because what they could not do through their gods, through their minds, and through their strength was done instantly by the Lord of all. We're not sure what these sailors knew about the one true God before their encounter with him and his prophet, but it seems not much. But by the end, they knew who he was. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Common pagan pirates, Perhaps you may not find these pirates so pagan now. God is the Lord of the pagan pirates. After Jonah meets the sailors, he begins to meet some slightly different, possibly slimier creatures. And so next, we'll look at these, the conforming characters of creation. That's a lot of C's, but I'm just talking about the things that God created that hear his voice and obey. His creation that conforms to his will and to his word. So Jonah is hurled into the sea. Here's how he described that experience. Chapter 2, verse 5. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. But then this is what God did. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, remember when God appointed Jonah to go to Nineveh? He went to Joppa instead. It's a good thing when God appointed the fish to go to Joppa that he didn't go to Nineveh. 
would have been a much shorter story and a much shorter sermon. He didn't. The fish wouldn't. When, when God commands a fish to go to Joppa, he goes to Joppa. When God commands the worm to eat the plant, he eats the plant. When the scorching east wind is summoned, it moves west, just as the sun does each day when God says, rise and do it again. However, when God commands the man to go to Nineveh, he goes to Joppa instead. And when he commands the man and the woman not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they eat from the tree. We are like beasts, but we're not like beasts. The difference goes beyond degree and development and evolution. It's a difference in kind. Those swarms of creatures of the sea and air created on the fifth day and those beasts of the land that were made in the morning light of the sixth day are distinctly different from those two who were made in the evening of the sixth day. For in the middle of that day, the triune God made an adjustment to what he was creating and he said to himself, let us make man in our image. And to him and her, male and female, mind you, he gave dominion over all created things. They were set apart as the bearers of his image, the jewel of his creation, distinctly like him, a different kind. We are like beasts, but we are not like beasts. Before long, these two, Adam and Eve, rebelled from their maker and fell from his grace. Humanity, that unique creation, fell from his grace. And these two began this particular practice that Jonah was so faithful to continue, they turned and ran in the wrong direction. I bring all this up because in this story, we see how different humanity is than the rest of creation. In that we, humanity, wear both the beautiful image of God and the ugly stain of sin. Unlike the rest of creation, we are a different kind. The fish did not swim to Joppa, Joppa in obedience because he was too unevolved to walk there in disobedience. The fish obeyed where Jonah rebelled because they're a different kind of creation. It's not because the fish as a species hasn't matured in his mind yet to the point that to thinking he can outrun an omnipresent God. That type of sinful, rebellious foolishness that you and I share with Jonah is not a mark of our superior advancement of the evolutionary timeline. It is a mark of a unique creature fallen from God's grace, marred with the inherited stain of original sin. That stain that was like a birthmark on Jonah and not on the fish is why they both ended up in Joppa. One running away and one running, or should I say swimming toward the glory of God. A fish might get on a boat near Joppa, heading to Tarshish, as Jonah did, but never to get off the hook of God's command. It would only be because he couldn't get off the hook of the fisherman's pole. God is the Lord of creatures. He that wings an angel guides a sparrow. These examples of creatures who conform remind us that God is the God of all things. Colossians 1, talking about Jesus, 
says that all things were created through him and for him. All things for God, for his glory. The heavens proclaim it day after day. The night pours out this speech. The beasts creep and crawl, swim and fly, run and hunt and hide, all according to his purpose and for his glory. We can't look up at the wonders of the sky or down at the beauty of a garden without notice. When we see a cute baby deer, we can't smile with delight or like our good friend Jonathan Wentz in fear without realizing we are in the midst of the reflection of his glory. He's not just Jonah's God, as the sailors mistakenly called him. He is God of the sailors and of the sea and the heavens and the earth and all that they contain. Nothing that was or is or ever will be is outside of his scope or is too far from his reach or free of his hand. The fish, the plant, the worm, the wind, none can speak, but they all say the same thing. He is Lord of all. God is the Lord of all creatures. Inside the belly of one of these creatures, Jonah reevaluates his decision. He becomes filled with gratitude of the Lord's provision and recognizes the foolishness of placing an idol before the Lord. Listen to what he says, chapter 2, verse 7. He says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you. Into your holy temple, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope and steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There's a lot of wisdom in a whale. Look at your neighbor and say to him, there is a lot of wisdom in a whale. Now, when Jonah decided to take this three-day weekend off the beautiful coast of Joppa, he didn't choose the belly of a fish with an ocean view as his stay. He says in verse 1 that he's in the belly of Sheol, which is not what he named the fish, as far as I know. It is a word that means house of death. And it is here in the house of death that he finds gratitude for God. It is here where wisdom happens to float by. We complain incessantly when we encounter anything but smooth sailing. Forget being trapped in the belly of a fish for three days. We moan when we're stuck at a light for three minutes. But contrary to all of that, James says this in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And there's a reason you should count it as joy, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. The events that make us groan are often where we grow. And this isn't a new idea. That a period of, of difficulty can often bring fruits of wisdom. Most of us already know this. We realize this. We've experienced this. The problem isn't ignorance. It's indulgence. Quite simply, we'd rather be comfortable than wise. I complain 
and grumble about difficulties because I want the fruit of pampering, not the fruit of perseverance. But this is our shared humanity. This is our shared humanity. We shake our heads and tisk tisk when we hear this. But then every single one of us is going to go out and live that. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this complaining, grumbling body of death? But there is wisdom in a whale. Jonah's not the first person to say to God, God, I am driven away from your sight. Some here may be saying the same thing right now. This is your testimony. This is your prayer right now. God, I am driven away from your sight, far from you. But notice Jonah's next action. Yet, verse 4, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple, the temple where the presence of God dwells. Jonah looks to God in prayer, in a cry for help, in a dependence for salvation. If you feel driven off from God, don't put your head down and sink to the bottom of the sea. Look to God in his temple. Move to him because it is there. It is in the presence of God where you can say with Jonah in verse 6, yet you brought up my life from the pit. Let that be your testimony. So Jonah is vomited out, and this time he goes to Nineveh. And the next group we will meet is non-believing Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a great city, great in size and power and influence and, and warlike might, but not in righteousness. They were brutal and violent and bloodthirsty. They hated God and his people. In other words, Nineveh was far from God. They were outside of his presence. They were outside of his covenant. They were outside of his protection and his saving mercy. So what did they need? Nineveh needed the truth. There was mercy available to Nineveh, but they needed the truth. All of it. They were not okay as is. They had sinned against the holy God, and there was but one way out of his judgment. It's repentance. The message of God's grace always begins with uncomfortable news. Nineveh could not taste the mercy of God until the realization of God's judgment over their sin opened their mouth. Nineveh needed to know that their souls weren't comfortably sailing along on a ship through quiet waters. The waters of God's judgment were closing in over them to take their life. The deep surrounded them. Weeds were wrapped around their head. Like Jonah in the sea, they were dying and needed saving. So Jonah comes proclaiming truth. Jonah 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Judgment awaits you, was his message. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
And then the king said in verse 8, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. God has never intended his messengers to try to flatter sinners into the kingdom. Many of the church have tried to make the church look more like the city of man than the city of God. But not Jonah. When he finally got around to it, the message from him is clear and direct. No pandering, no signaling, no kiss and cuddle. He wasn't after likes. The message was direct and the repentance was tangible. Repentance is not a theory, it's a tangible thing. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. You don't walk into the kingdom with soft, velvety clothes and perfectly cleaned and manicured nails. You come in in sackcloth and ashes. There are great riches in the kingdom beyond compare, but hear this, only the poor beggars are let in. From the greatest to the least, it says, sackcloth and ashes. Have you skipped this step? Have some of you tried to come in a different way? The streets are paved with gold, but the road in is covered in ash. The great city of Nineveh wasn't actually great until from the greatest to the least, sackcloth and ash on their knees before the Lord of all. God is the Lord of Nineveh. Contrary to most Bible picture books, the book of Jonah is not ultimately about a big fish. It's about a big God. In this story, we see the great God, a God so big that his love extends all the way across the border into Nineveh. That final conversation of the book between Jonah and God brings so much light to us on the differences of priorities between small, sinful humanity and the big God of the world. We obsess over and have allegiance to ourselves and our comfort. Look at how Jonah so greatly values the plant. Because of what it does for him, it brings him shade. Contrast that with God and his love for and concern of people, peoples, the nations. God says to Jonah, how strange it is that you would concern yourself so with a plant that you have no real connection with other than a little comfort. Do you not realize that those who are lost are far from me and they were made by my hands and nurtured with my love? God had given Jonah a commission, go into Nineveh and preach so that they might find grace. Church, God has given us a commission, a great commission. Go into all the world and preach so that they may find my grace. Now I want to speak for just a moment to those who are members here at King's Cross. This is our commission. This isn't the work 
of parachurch organizations or mission boards or humanitarian groups. It is for us, the church, King's Cross, to go into all the world and preach the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are far from God. Let us not respond by fleeing to Joppa or to Carolina Beach. This is important to hear. For Jonah was not the last one to care more about comfort than missions. I want to challenge you to look inside yourself this morning and see if there is a plant who has wrapped its leaf around your heart. A comfort or a fear or a misplaced allegiance. Something that's keeping you from looking up and seeing them, the nations keeping you from our commission. And I pray and hope you would pray as well that if there is, that God would send a worm into your heart and kill it at its root. Jonah's a disappointing figure. He's a prophet, a messenger, for a few days a bit of a marine biologist. But more than anything else, he was a child of God. But the mistakes he makes, the foolish thoughts and feelings he has, he's so unwise. I agree with Charles Spurgeon. He said, God still has a great many unwise children. You can easily find one if you look in the right place. That is to say, a mirror. In one way, the, the story of Jonah ends sitting up on that hill with a, with a dead plant and a fat worm. But also, in another way, the story of Jonah does not end. Because 800 years later, another will come. He too sent by God the Father. And the story continues with him. We find this out in Matthew 12, verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The story of Jonah continues with the story of Jesus. Jesus, who ended up in a tomb, the heart of the earth, for three days. Not because he walked to Joppa empty-handed. It was because he walked to Calvary holding a cross. He died willingly to pay for the sins of Nineveh the sins of the nations, the sins of you and me dying. And then three days later, resurrection. Not in a vomitous mass, but in power and glory. Because of this, if we would repent over our sin, like Nineveh, sackcloth and ash on our knees, then we will be saved and called children of God. How does the story end then? The story of Jonah, the story of Jesus. 
Philippians 2 tells us. Verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The story ends with every knee bowed, every tongue confessing, all peoples, all nations, all tongues crying out with the pagan pirates, with Nineveh, and with all of creation. God is Lord of all. Somebody say, God is Lord of all. I love a good story. Let's pray.